Hi, this is Dan Runcy, founder of Trapital, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, your place for weekly insights on the new music business with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. From the RIAA and other sources, the RIAA Mid-Year Report, we break it down. From Billboard, why indie artists are a rarity on radio. If you don't pay, you don't move up. From Penny Fractions, why major labels and Spotify love fake artists. And another from Billboard, house legislation to get artists and labels paid for radio airplay gets companion bill in the U.S. Senate. Ooh, that's good news if that can happen. We've got this. We have got more. Jay, very looking forward to starting and hitting the play button right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, it is good to see you, brother. We are recording on a Sunday afternoon, way late for us. Yeah, this is rare for us. It is very It's been a crazy rare. weekend. You know, you had a lot of things going on. I was coming back from uh, from Dallas, Texas, of all places. Dallas, had, uh, Texas. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like that was a good trip. It was a great trip. Um, I went out and uh, hung out with uh, Ann Wilson and her band, The Amazing Dogs, they were playing a show with Jeff Beck and ZZ Top uh, there in Dallas, Texas, and it was a lot of fun. Seeing ZZ amazing. Top in Dallas, Texas was probably pretty <laughs> yeah. fun. You know, that's well, their backyard. All of those guys in Dallas, Texas, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, uh, it was quite fun, and it was a quick trip. You know, I flew out uh, Saturday morning, came back today. Rushed in here to uh, record with you, and I know you've been super busy too, but I'm just thrilled that we... Uh, we get to do this. Absolutely. And big thanks to Dan Runcy from Trapital for giving us a little intro there. Very nice. Yes. We love uh, Trapital, the website and the uh, newsletter. If you don't already subscribe, what yes, are you waiting and, for? Exactly. What are you waiting for? And uh, in addition to your trip to Dallas, I think, were you, didn't you do something out at, uh, in Denver at one of the universities out there? Yeah. I did a, um, a guest lecture um, with UC Denver. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of fun. It's uh, their professor is Storm Gluer, who I've known for a little while, and I've done his classes before. Very insightful. These uh, these college kids, <laughs> they're uh, 
they're really sharp and they asked a lot of great questions and they were very prepared. And speaking of uh, Colorado, you know, my daughter graduated from Colorado State and I'm going to go out the first week in December and do a guest lecture with uh, um, Colorado State University. They have a great music business program and I'm really excited to go out there for that. That'll be fun. That'll be way fun. Check yeah. in on your, on your kid. By the yeah. way, the guy who is the traveling machine over this last week and just a heck of a groovy dude, that's Jay Gilbert. I get to do this every week with Jay. He's the co-founder of Label and Artist Services company Label Logic. He is the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music, and Fox Home Entertainment and Just... A man on a mission. <sighs> Thank you so much. And my brother from another mother sitting across from me. You can't see him, but thankfully I can. Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music Group, Capital EMI, and Universal Music. And the go-to guy for me when it comes to documentaries, and we got a couple <laughs> that are coming up. Um, you just saw the one from Creedence Clearwater Revival on Netflix. I haven't seen that yet. What's your uh, oh, what's your great. review? What's your take? Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. So this is a, a, a live show they did back. It's either 70 or 72. I've for, forgotten now. But uh, it was a concert they did at the Royal Albert Hall. And so it's kind of a semi-documentary, but it's mostly the live performance. And uh, man, they were a great band live. Unbelievably tight. And, and very, you know, you forget, you see that it's, it's a a very basic setup. I mean, they sound they sound so tight, and you know they're not a jam band. They Queens Clearwater Revival were a very concise group. You know, they had uh, you know their songs. If you look at those, some of those singles, and they had a fantastic songs. Uh, they're like two yeah. minutes and forty seconds. You know, they're really fast, and they play like that. But they've got so much energy, and Fogarty's such a great singer. And oh my oh, god, they yeah. just sounded great. But it's funny to see. You know, we're we're so used to the big extravaganza concert shows. And <laughs> right. There they are on this stage, and there's really no backdrop, and it's no it, video screen, no video screen, <laughs> and you know they're like just no you know, pyro, one, no nothing. <laughs> And they just, but they sounded fantastic. And they hadn't really gotten, this was kind of around, I think, one of their first trips out of Europe. And Jeff Bridges narrates it. And, uh, oh, cool. Yeah. So I think this had been sitting around in a vault for a long time. And, and, uh, so anyway, it's, uh, it was great. Uh, I will great, check it out. Great worth, worth watching. Yeah. I will definitely check that out. Um, speaking of documentaries, we talked a little bit about, uh, the Cream Magazine documentary yes, a little we bit, did. uh, back. And, I was such a big fan of Cream Magazine when I was in high school. I used to ride my bike you know, a few miles to the 7-Eleven. I knew when it was going to be uh, dropped each month, and I would pick it up and then ride home. And, you know, the photos were really great. And remember, we didn't have MTV or the Internet mm -hmm. back then, and so that's how you kind of kept in touch uh, with your favorite artists. And I was just such a big fan of, of Cream Magazine um, back in the day. Anyway, um, I had the opportunity to speak with their CEO this week, and the reason for that is because they're relaunching the magazine after 33 years, Love an it. actual you know, print magazine. Love so it. I was really curious why. So um, I asked their CEO, John Martin, and uh, let's, let's roll the tape. This is what he said. All right. John, thank you for joining me. You know, it's been 33 years since America's only rock and roll magazine was available, but it's back. How did that happen, and what can we expect from Cream Magazine going forward? 
So JJ Kramer, who is the chairman of Cream and also the son of the founder, uh, he made the documentary Cream, America's Only Rock and Roll Magazine uh, two years ago. And coming from the success of that documentary, the enthusiasm that he saw in the world for Cream, uh, he realized that it was uh, time to bring the magazine back. He probably always wanted to bring the magazine back, but then he really got down to business. And as to what to expect in the future, uh, you're going to see coverage of new artists. You're going to see coverage of artists from the classic era of Cream. And you're going to see coverage of artists from the era Cream missed, you know, 1989 to 2022. Um, but, you know, very much uh, this isn't a nostalgia play at all. Uh, you're seeing a lot of representation of the best new role artists who, quite frankly, don't have as many outlets as rock and roll artists had in the 70s and 80s. And uh, that's why Cream's back. Great stuff, Jay. Boy, yeah, that's ex- yeah. you know I I mean we've we've talked about this before. I'm so, we're both magazine geeks, right? And absolutely. When we used to travel, that was I, I would always stop, go to Tower Records, and especially the British publications, get Mojo and a lot of the other things because they're just so well written and so detailed and yeah. lovely printing, and they Ugh. were expensive, but it was worth every penny of it. And uh, so yeah. I just applaud, uh, you know, someone coming back. For, uh, some, with, some, a magazine. Someone with a print magazine. How magazine. cool is that? Yeah. You know, I used to fly to New York, and I had this routine, and, and my coworkers still goof on me for this. But I would land, I'd drop my stuff off at the hotel, and then I'd run down uh, to Virgin Records. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they had this great magazine stand, and I would get what you just mentioned, like at Mojo or Q or whatever. The, these British rock magazines tended to be so much better, you know, better stories, better research, better photos. And then I would go across the street to Olive Garden. They had a bar downstairs and I would Uh sit at the bar and talk to the bartender and I would read and like maybe have a little spaghetti or something. But I'd be sitting there at the bar talking to the bartender all night about music. And I remember one time sitting at a staff meeting and the CFO goes, "Uh, Jay, I want to talk to you about your expenses. And I said, yeah, well, what's the deal? And he goes, so you're going to New York. You know, we're some of the finest restaurants on the planet and you're going to the Olive Garden, you know, like, like what is up with that? And it's like, it was my routine. I just, that bartender was so cool and we just talk about music and anyway, I'll take the abuse. Yeah, exactly. But to love to see that that magazine is coming back, and that was such an influential magazine to so many people. Yeah. And like you said, you know, if if you were alive and a music fan during those years, it's hard to, you know, like my kids can't quite. <clears throat> I mean, they know intellectually that it was there was no internet. There was it was before MTV. But you yeah. know, you would just you would look at album covers, and I think you've you've mentioned this before. You know, it's, and maybe you'd catch a, a band on the Midnight Special or on right Don, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Rock Concert. And, you know, that was yeah. the closest you got to seeing these bands, what they looked like, what they moved like, what they, yeah. what, you know, how, how they pulled it off. And, um, yeah. and, and Cream Magazine and Circus and, you know, Hit those Parader. were the, Hit Parader. Those were the, those were kind of your, your entree to, to getting a glimpse. And I didn't and miss an, uh, an yeah. edition of any right. of those magazines when they, uh, when they came out. And I was mentioning to you one time about, you know, my first real, you know, like, big concert was Cheap Trick opening for Kiss. And the night before the concert, I had this Cream magazine and it had an article on Cheap Trick. 
and you'll remember Cream is pretty, you know, snarky. Snarky, yeah. Yeah, and, and kind of funny. And there was, it was right before an article on, on Kiss. And so it kind of set the stage. And then the next, uh, the next day or next night when I saw them play, to your point, I had never seen either one of those bands move before. Yeah. You know, and it was shocking to see, especially with Kiss, with the makeup and the outfits and the pyro and all of that stuff. Nothing prepares you for that when you see photographs in magazines. Now, today, you can go on and see what they ate for breakfast. You can see them yeah. do everything. So there's that mystery is gone uh, to a lot of it. But it was a different time. It was a little more romantic. It was a well, little... and, and something you mentioned, you know, those magazines were available at 7-Elevens or, or, you know, Five and Dimes. Yeah. And we both grew up outside of major yes. media centers, major metropolitan areas. And you could still get those magazines there. And so that made a big difference, too. You know, if you grew up in L.A. or New York or Chicago, you might have been able to have a little bit more resources and, and, and more opportunities to maybe kind of see yeah. media with with bands like that but but for us it wasn't that case yet we could still go to 7-eleven and pick up all of those magazines so that's right was, oh gosh it was so fun yeah. so anyway so cool. jay hey you know what we get to do this every week but boy we could not do it without the lovely sponsors we have so i'm gonna let you start because yeah. we and we're very it. appreciated uh appreciative i mean uh of that your morning coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at bandzoogle built by musicians for musicians bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it really easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. We've done it. All the features you need for a professional website, hey, they're all built in. Hosting in a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, that's important, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integration, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com. You can try it for free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, and that'll get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. And the Your Morning Coffee podcast is also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. And yes, Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations recommendations and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies and artists access access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. So big thanks to Banzoogle, Hypebot and Bands in Town. We most we appreciate, it. appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Jay, what do you say Ooh. we jump into these? This uh, first story. This is from uh, uh, this is a, from the RIAA, and of course, other sources. This is the RIAA mid-year report. Yeah, and, and just for say? those who don't know, there's a couple of reports that you and I cover every six months. Mm -hmm. The RIAA, which we're doing today, and that's U.S. 
and then the IFPI, which we'll be covering here soon, and that is global. So we're just taking a look at uh, U.S., and there were several stories that um, I put in your morning coffee this week. First of all, I put the link to the PDF for the RIAA uh, mid-year report, and it's it's fun to to look at it and see how things are changing and growing and see their charts and graphs, but I always love the stories that come out right afterwards mm-hmm. where people tell you what they pulled out of it. And I listed three stories this week, one from music business worldwide, um, one from variety and one from billboard because they all had a little bit different take. And the first one I'm just going to touch on really quickly is the one that Glenn peoples wrote for billboard. The headline was streaming is growing just not like it used to five takeaways from the RIAA mid-year report. And he talks about how sync revenue is way up, you know, and sync is when you get your music placed in film, TV, games, that sort of thing. CD sales are slipping. We'll talk about that in a second because there's all this talk about a resurgence in CDs. And yes, there has been, but it's it's dropped a couple of points. And then ARPU, average revenue per user, you and I love that acronym, ARPU (laughs) is down a little bit and subscriber growth, although it's still good, it's it's down a little bit too. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's. Um, well, let's jump into it. You know, this is this is a, a mature business, and we see this a lot. And what's interesting, as we've talked about a bunch of times, is that for the most part, unlike any of your movie subscriptions, any unlike anything else. Uh, almost all of the music sub- subscription services have not raised their rates. And it's, you know, you can't expect ARPU to go up if nobody is raising their rates. And it is, it's getting to, to me where it's getting to a point where it's, oh, it's almost weird. You know, it's like, what's... Well, I think you're, we're going to see that change. And there, there was only one slight raise uh, in prices. Spotify raised its family plan price from $14.99 to $15.99 back in April of 2021. But other than that, you know, it's, there hasn't been much. Amazon raised the price of its Amazon Music single device plan from $3.99 to $4.99. Again, these are very small, you know, uh, changes. And Amazon raised their Music Unlimited from $7.99 to $8.99 or $79 to $89 annually. But that's like, you know, that's very little revenue. And I think you and I, both agree that in order for things to really change and get people paid how they should be paid. And these, these prices are just so low for an all you can eat with, you know, 80 million tracks. Absolutely. And, um, and as we've kind of talked about, I'm quite sure, like, I think when it comes to video and movie services, you know, it's getting to the point, obviously, where, where you have to make some choice. You have to make some decisions. You know, you can't have them all. You can't have Paramount. You can't have right. the Peacock. You can't have Discovery. You, you can't, well, I mean, you can, but, you know, most of it us... It's expensive, right? It gets expensive. Most of us kind of have to say, okay, what am I really watching in the next couple of months? And, 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 and you make decisions based on that. However, music is a little different. And so there's... Everybody pretty much has one music service. And... I don't think people, there's not going to be a stampede to cancel the service if if Spotify raises their rates. I don't think, uh, you know, it's it's 
And yet it's, and you would think Spotify would be doing that, or I would think that, but I guess they're just very tentative and don't want to be the first one to, to, to do it. I think that's a large part of it. I think that with music, you build your playlists and you have your library and, you know, you may not want to jump ship. Plus the difference between the DSPs is minimal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, if, when it comes right down to it, they all sort of have the, the same music, but with you know, all of those video services, they're different. And I hear the behavior, well, I read that the behavior on video is people will jump in and jump sure. out depending mm-hmm. on what's going on there. But to me, that's, that's a pain. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm too busy to worry about that. I just, give me one good service and let me just, I'll subscribe and, you know, I'll get on with my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let, let's talk about Glenn's article too, because there are sure, the, he's got sure. some takeaways. Uh, and we, you, you touched on this. Subscriber growth rate fell to single digits at 90 million subscribers. The U.S. market added 8 million subscribers, which is a 9.8 percent gain nice. from mid from mid 2021. Um, yeah, but that was considerably smaller than the 9.5 million gain, equal to about 13 percent in the first half of 2021. At the midpoint of 2020, subscriptions were up 13.9 million, or 24 percent. So, you know, one would assume that, well, you know, it's it, the market is maturing, or it is mature, and you know, there's it, it will continue to grow, but you're not going to see those exponential growths potentially. I mean, I don't, I don't, but I, it's still I don't growing. So. Yeah, right? it's still growing. Yeah. It's just not growing as fast as it was. And, you know, we talked about Glenn pointing out that CD sales fell 2.2% after mm-hmm. bouncing back. CD sales, you know, they're still down from pre-pandemic levels in terms of the dollar amount. However, the almost $200 million, uh, of CD sales in the first half of 2022 were about 19% lower than the 248-odd million in the first half of 2019. So, in my mind, that's closer to flat. I mean, 2.2% fall, you know, that's not massive. And and I always think about, like, what are the releases in those time periods? Are we comparing a release uh, period, let's say it's six months or a year, that, that had, you know, Adele or some big sure. CD seller? Yeah. So that that number to me isn't isn't massive. I still think that CDs are doing much better than people you know, would have thought they'd be doing. Absolutely. Speaking of that ARPU that we had mentioned, uh, average revenue per user fell to $50.09 from $50.31 a year, a year earlier. Again, that's that's really, I mean, it is a slight dip, but it's nothing to yeah. right, not really, you know, that's, yeah. that's nothing. Um, but uh, interest, interestingly, the RIAA does not report that metric. So in this case, Billboard c- uh, calculated ARPU using um, the two metrics in the report, yeah. paid subscription revenue and average number of subscribers so they kind of that's a good point they just kind of calculated that themselves yes yes but it it will be interesting to see if 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 this is the year when let's say spotify uh raises their rates because that'll make a big difference absolutely and variety points out it was uh jim oswad who we cover a lot on your morning coffee um the headline for variety uh jim's article was vinyl sales soared 22 percent in the first half of 2022 and of course, again, that's U.S. So uh, he points out that U.S. recorded music overall, the revenue climbed 9%. Streaming revenues were up 10%, and vinyl soared a whopping 22% in 
the first six months of 2022, according to the uh, Recording Industry Association of America, RIAA. Total revenue climbed 9% to $7.7 billion. That's the estimated retail value. So the total streaming revenues rose 10% to $6.5 billion, and paid streaming subscription services are up $90 million, with their uh, revenue rising 10% to uh, $5 billion over the, you know, the first uh, half of the year. However, the report notes that at wholesale value, revenues grew 8%. To 4.9 billion, and I know that's a lot of numbers um, that we're throwing at you. But the the takeaway there is that with CD sales maybe flat or down a couple of points, you know you've got vinyl that's still up 22 percent, you know, and it's not locked down anymore, right? It's not just people yeah. like me at home replacing their vinyl; um, it's still growing. And that's and that's of course a category that still is cannot produce as much vinyl as demand. So if right, it's getting can, better. It's but getting you're better. Absolutely, sure. you're right. Yeah. It is. Whenever I talk with artists and managers about release cycles, we're looking months and months ahead for for that vinyl and planning accordingly to get the uh, capacity. Yeah. Now, this mid year report, and again, I love these reports. They have these really cool charts and graphs, and one of them just shows you know, what the breakdown is by configuration, right? Mm -hmm. And you look at streaming and it is most of that pie. It's yeah. 84%, you know, of the revenue from U.S. recorded music in the first half of 2022, 84% is streaming. Uh, physical is 10%, right? That's CD and vinyl. Digital downloads are still hanging in there, uh, about 3% of the revenue. And then sync licensing, uh, you know, music, placing, film, TV, games, et cetera, um, is about uh, 2%. But the sync thing, I wonder how how that's tracked. It's so hard to stay yeah. on top of that. Like, how, how would you stay on top of all of those deals for all of those syncs? I can see how you do it, like, in a major motion picture or a television show or maybe even some commercials, but... We'll have to ask uh, Glenn Peoples about that, how they track that and how accurate that number is. Yeah. You know, in his article, he's got uh, sync revenues jumped 20 point, almost 30 percent to 178 wow. million. Yeah. Um, which was a, mark, a remarkable jump for a category that remains steady in the previous four mid-year reports. Uh, so these these are, but even at one set, 178 million, that, to be honest, that seems low. You know, we we've yeah. talked about all of these different streaming services and for, for film and 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 television and i mean there's just loaded with music it seems like that number would be a larger number even though that's a risk you know a 30 percent yeah. jump it's stunning yeah. but yeah. that's really kind of you know the new radio boy everybody you, you know in our era of working at labels you know the film and tv guys were just down the hall and nobody paid any attention and you know they would get deals bring deals in but now those guys are in all the meetings and yeah. every manager comes in and says i i want my, my it's a priority and tv yeah. and film yeah. they want that and it wasn't that long ago you know neil young was railing against artists who were using their songs in uh commercials and just over time i think part of it was that sting jaguar commercial i think part of it was the hipness of some of those early itunes commercials mm -hmm. that would break bands you know yeah. like feist and uh you know over time for a developing artist it's been one of those ways that they can break through 
Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it is such an important part of artist development now. Um, yeah, but that means that you know lots of people clamoring for. Yeah, not a lot of, of competitions. Sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the next article, Jay. It seems like again, uh, um, we 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 just in the industry we can't get away from this. It's from Billboard. Why indie artists are a rarity on radio. If you don't pay, you don't move up. And yeah. this is a lot just, of buzz on this, Mike. This yeah. week, I got a lot of phone calls and talking because I'm running a couple of radio campaigns right now, and there are people that I work with that took exception to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were quick to point out that although there are some bad actors out there that you have to pay to get on the radio, and we'll dig into that in a second, this piece by Elias Late, um, it, it, the kind of sub-headline is promotion executives from independent labels tell Billboard that a pay-to-play toll is keeping them off the airwaves. Yeah. Now, can you use an independent radio promotion person that doesn't do this? Yeah, we're doing it right now. We, we've done it a lot. This isn't every indie radio station, but what they're talking about, there are some key stations, and what they do is they use a, you know, an independent radio promotion person. We've talked about this a lot. So you're not necessarily paying a radio station to play your song. You're paying an independent lay, uh, radio promotion guy. Like, I'm going to pay you this much money, and I'm hoping that you can get my song added to these stations. And that's where, as you mentioned, this has been you know, a, a thorn in the side of the music industry you know, forever. I mean, since the 50s, and it's... It's really a challenge, especially for indie artists. Yeah. This article starts with, uh, it's worth reading. It says, not long ago, a major label radio promotion executive had a song climbing up the top 10 in his format. Eager to maintain the track's upward momentum, he tried to get a station in a small city in the Northeast to put the song into rotation. There was only one problem. That station worked with a middleman known as an independent radio promoter who controlled what tracks received airplay. And that middleman demanded $3,000 for an ad. $3,000. 3K. And this is a small station. And this person said, it frustrates the hell out of me. But if you don't pay, you don't move up. He notes referring to the radio airplay charts. Adding yeah. to the frustration, the cost was high enough to make even a deep-pocketed major label think twice. In the world of independent labels, though, $3,000 to get one song played on one station in a small market can be prohibitive. Majors Absolutely. can throw so much money at a release and get it running up the charts, said one executive with experience running radio campaigns for indie labels. As an independent label, you can get something played at a small handful of commercial stations. Once your budget runs out, you almost have to build, You almost have a built-in ceiling and you know having worked at an and started at indie at an indie label um you know you we relied on college stations you know you, you the, the thought of moving a track from from success at college radio to then the burgeoning alternative rock the k-rocks of the world yeah was just almost untenable because because of these gatekeepers and you know that was this this is in the late 80s when i was working at an indie label it hasn't changed right. in fact it seems right. like it's gotten worse yeah, and they talk about money, but there are other things that are sort of bartered for these things, too. And we've seen this for many, many years. And that could be, you know, ticket giveaways. It could be having the artist play your holiday show. Yes. It could be on, on-air on giveaways. You know, promotion executives, you know, they have these varying offers. 
you know, and they talk about some of the campaigns, you know, they're not created equal. Um, for, for example, a AAA uh, campaign can run $30,000 and up, you know, while making an impact at alternative radio is likely going to cost at least $40,000. Jeez. Um, it could take more than $60,000. A, ca- a campaign at Active Rock and Adult Top 40 will often set a record company back even more than that, these sources say. And if a label sets its sight on the top of mainstream R&B, hip-hop, or Top 40 airplay charts, the budget's likely going to be in the six figures. Jeez. Well, and, you know, I mean, you know, you always talk about in anything like this, what's the ROI? What's the return on investment? And when it was a CD business... There was a considerable return on on investment, but now in a streaming world, you know, is it does it come back? Well, I, I was reading this piece about how the tail is wagging the dog, meaning mm-hmm. that it used to be that when streaming, you know, in two thousand six, two thousand eight, two thousand ten, when streaming was first starting to pick up steam, that they were looking at radio playlists and radio charts and modeling a lot of their playlists after those well now it's swapped you know a lot of radio stations are really looking to these top playlists by apple music amazon music spotify etc and modeling their radio uh, after that but the problem is there there are stations where you're not going to get your record played unless you're going through an independent promotion person and money or goods are exchanging hands and I know that every so often there's a crackdown. You know, mm-hmm. there was in the 50s, there was in the 60s, there was that Spitzer thing that happened a while back. And it seems like it's cyclical that um, there'll be a pushback against it, new rule set, but then it kind of comes back. Yeah, it sure does. But again, this, you know, we're talking about independent labels versus major labels in this scenario. And, and as this article points out, it says as a result of these gatekeepers, some independent labels have chosen to tap out. There are certain formats that indie labels don't venture into because they just can't afford it, says one longtime member of the independent music community who has worked at a variety of labels, pointing especially to Top 40 and Country Radio. Most independents I know have just given up. The airwaves are designed not to be built for all, adds one frustrated promotion executive who works at an indie label. You can only come to the table if you're spending the right amount of money and you know the right people. And yeah. uh, that's just a bummer. But, but I mean, it's not surprising. You know, again, when you've got, <sighs> yeah. when you've got so many uh, or so few slots, you know, on a given radio format, you know, if you've taken Econ 101, you know, you know, it's, it's supply and demand. And if the supply is low and the demand is high, it, you, you will have the introduction of costs. Yeah. And high costs is that. And yeah. And and it's funny, you know, I work when I worked at Giant Records. So I went from SST to Warner Brothers and then to Giant. And that label at the time was really focused on uh, you know, on on pop radio basically. And it was eye opening to me because especially coming from Warner Brothers, which is very artist oriented and, and they certainly had a promotion department, you know, Van Halen sure. at the time, that was the Sammy Hagar Van Halen. You know, those records were going, you know, get moving over to pop radio. They had a lot of stuff, but by and large that was not what you would call a, a label that was focused on pop radio. Giant at the time was. And boy, it was it was uh 
it was interesting to watch because I was there not for on the pop side. I was brought in to be an alternative product manager, um, but I would you know I would observe the meetings and and hear uh, how much money was spent and the the plans. And at the time, the the, the president of Giant was a. Uh, the late Charlie Miner, who came over sure. from A and M, and boy, that guy knew how to sling the money around and how to get. You know, he knew every radio promote. I mean, he knew every radio programmer uh, at Top Forty Radio across the country and had a relationship with them. And oh my God, to see that guy work, it was unreal. But it's it was just a, a culture shock for me coming from sort of the alternative side of things yeah. to see that and, work. And the Indies can't compete on that le- uh, level. In this article, they point out that 85% of the tracks on Billboard's year-end uh, 2021 radio songs chart, 85% are from major labels, yeah. right? And that that's why. But also, let's talk about, this is illegal, yeah. right? Let's By not the way, mince... This is not mince words because the airwaves belong to the public, mm-hmm. and you can't pay uh, for placement. Well, let me let me rephrase that. You can pay if it's disclosed yes. that you're that this is a paid placement, right? And then that's the difference between what we call payola, which is that paying for something on the radio, and what we've dubbed as playola, which is when somebody pays to get something into a playlist. And that's why there's so much gray area there, because those aren't public uh, airwaves. And is it unethical? Is it a little sketchy? Sure. Is it illegal? I'm not a lawyer, but it doesn't sound like it is, at least not yet. So I know this is going to come to a shock to you, Mike, but there's some, uh, you know, some sketchy dealings when it comes to uh, getting things played on the radio. I'm sorry. In the, in the music business, you're saying there's sketchy dealings? Well, yeah. Oh, gee, Jay. I know. I know. It's an eye opener. I didn't know that. And it makes me feel bad for all these indies because, let's face it, there's some amazing music on these indie labels. Oh, Um, of course. Just amazing music. And it's not getting its fair shake at radio because it can't compete, you know, on on paying those kinds of prices. Um, And then some of the uh, majors own a piece of some of these digital service providers like Spotify and Deezer. And so they're maybe at the front of the line when it comes to that. So it, it just makes it more challenging uh, for an indie artist in today's uh, marketplace. And another thing that's been pointed out in some of these articles is that take country music, for example. That's this problem on steroids. It's, right. a, it's a whole different world out there. Don't think you're going to just have a great song and have it added at country radio. It takes money and it takes relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of sketchy, Jay, <laughs> let's let's move into the next story. It's from Penny Fractions. Why major labels and Spotify love fake artists? Yeah. Yeah, this is a takeoff of an article we covered either last week or the week before. It's kind of a second one. And he even points out that his last newsletter on fake streams got people really excited. And, you know, so he decided to kind of have a part two and if you don't read Penny Fractions, you should. It's it's really a great uh, newsletter. I, I really love it. Um, he talks about no, notable instances of fraud are often perpetrated by the world's largest record companies. You take that back. So if it's such a problem, then multi-billion streaming companies should invest more resources into addressing it. However, 
Much of the industry narrative leans on blaming quote-unquote pirates and other small-scale perpetrators that are operating on the margins of the overall system. My less vindictive view of these quote-unquote bad actors is informed by this week's topic of fake artists. Now, he goes on to talk about, you know, FN Mecca, who you and I have talked about. You know, that was that you know, uh, virtual reality rapper mm-hmm. and come to find out that there weren't many people of color working on it. And it had some really bad negative stereotypes about African-Americans and so on. I, I don't really look at that as a fake artist because there are real artists behind that writing, recording some really great music. You know, you might even think is, is gorillas a, a fake artist? You know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I tend to look at that situation a little bit differently than some of the problems that he goes into in this article, like when a streaming service will load up their service with, you know, their own kind of commissioned music for uh, new age or chill or whatever music and load up those playlists with their own sort of uh, commissioned music. To me, if it's not being disclosed, there's something a little sketchy about that. Well, and it's it, it's the other kind of shoe to drop, or the the other side of that. You know, when you have these commission artists, oftentimes they're getting or those uh, this, this, the the rates they pay to those artists are less than typical ah. rates, and so it's like, oh, God, really? So maybe they own the artist, or they own a piece of it, or something. the company. Sure. Like remember that there was that company uh, Epidemic Sound. Um, Music Business Worldwide did a piece um, that they claimed that Spotify was filling up some of their most popular playlists with music composed by artists on Epidemic Sound and who shares investors with Spotify and agreed to provide them with music at a discount, to your point, to help Spotify control its costs when paying out to music rights holders. So, yeah, I mean, I've heard... Not to pick on Spotify, but I'd heard this at DSPs that there is music that's being loaded up, you know, just like this, you know, um, epidemic sound uh, issue. Yeah, it's just, well, again, you know, you're, 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 we shouldn't be surprised, but we can always be disappointed. Um, ugh, it's just, but this is the business, right? You know, when you always have you, 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 that, that cross section of commerce with art and when you have a limited amount of of, um, of outlets with which to get that 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 stuff out, um, we we run into this whether it's payola on the radio or whether it's playlists or whether it's these kind of AI artists or things like that. Everyone's looking to to grow their profit. They're looking yeah. to um, you know to figure out ways to be more profitable in this case or to. Um, you know, promote their artists and, you know, it's just, it's not, it, we shouldn't be surprised, but right. it, it's, I am always more disappointed because we got into this business for the love of music. And yeah. you and I came from, you know, the, a very classical, not classical music, but a classical artist development uh, yeah. uh, departments and, and experiences as we were going up. And so I tend to look at these, uh, you know, my, t- to me, the music business should be about artist development. And yeah. when you have these, artificial artists or it's just it just it bums me out <laughs> I don't yeah. know what else to say I but wonder if some of it could change with the uh, FPR fan powered royalty which is a user centric model uh, a lot of yeah. a lot of people are telling me that 
that should be uh, the wave of the future and could really help with some of these problems. You know, we, we talk about, you know, the UK has this competition and markets authority and they had their study on streaming and that, you know, included a couple of stats about playlists. And we've talked about this before. A playlist is not a marketing plan. Mm-hmm. And there's this misconception that that should be your target are these DSP curated playlists. But, but what the study found is over half of the plays generated, let's say on Spotify, came from user curated playlists, not DSP curated playlists. Right. You know, and looking, that was Spotify, but looking at the other three platforms, YouTube, Apple, Amazon, nearly half of the listening happens completely outside of any of those curated playlists. And you and I were talking about this chart. I printed it out from, you know, a few weeks back where, you know, the percentage of people who are listening to music, you know, on a playlist uh, compared to somebody's library as to, as opposed to just searching it, it's not the primary behavior yet. It's all anybody wants to talk about. Oh, I got to get on new music Friday or I've got to be on this playlist. It's like, a playlist is not a marketing plan. Yeah, very frustrating. Anyway, well, this you know we will continue to kind of come back to these versions of these stories and um, this uh, you know as this article ends, he said the narrative of artists being displaced and without any agency to stop it is one that only serves those making these digital tools. However, there are plenty of music communities and scenes that don't need to shrink themselves into this market share driven paradigm. It's coveted by big labels and streaming platforms. Yeah. Okay. There it is. There it is. Before we move on, I just want to touch base really quickly. Uh, The person who puts together Penny Fractions every week is uh, David Turner. And I had the pleasure of uh, talking with David uh, once or twice. And he's very deliberate, very smart. Um, He's one of those guys that likes to dig a bit and find out why things are uh, the way they are. And Again, you can support him um, with, uh, you know, his uh, Penny Fractions uh, um, newsletter. It's, it's really great. Um, he's written for, you know, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, Music Business Worldwide. Um, but I highly encourage you to check out um, David Turner's Penny Fractions. Yeah, and he's got a lot of nice links to interesting stories kind of in the in the financial world of music and uh, a, a definitely worth reading his newsletter and following what he's talking about because he's a, another smart cookie that we appreciate and uh, look up to. <laughs> so Absolutely. the last one, uh, the last article, the last story we're going to talk about actually is from Billboard. House legislation to get artists and labels paid for radio airplay gets companion bill in the U.S. Senate. And this is something we've talked about a number of times. And just a reminder, here in the U.S., if you are an artist being played on the radio, um, unless you're the songwriter, you're not getting paid for that airplay. It's it's different in most territories around the world. Both the songwriter and the artist get paid. It's yeah. uh, it's been a long-standing deal between the the labels and the uh, broadcasters going back into the fifties or the forties. I mean, I can't, it, it, a long, long way back um, that had this deal, and there have been so many attempts to try to change it, and well, nothing has really yeah, worked. Yeah, you're right, but it's been it's really been heating up over the last couple of years, in large part to Blake Morgan and we've talked about Blake um, I've spoken with Blake he's a he's a great recording artist number one but he is 
he started this thing, this hashtag, I respect music. Mm-hmm. And that has really uh, put this in people's minds, in, in front of mind, and got people to talk about it. And he was kind of the first one that I had heard that really was shouting from the rooftops that the U.S., to your point, is the only democratic country in the world where artists don't get paid for AM and FM radio play. It's, it's crazy that they don't. And he was arguing that um, radio stations were saying, well, this will put us out of business. It'll bankrupt us. And it's like, no, you're actually going to pay based on your revenue that you bring in. And for a small station, that might be $500 a year. It, it's not going to put you out of business. It's not going to break you. But it's, it's time to pay up, you know. And I'm so happy that, you know, this House legislation has passed. And now it's going to the Senate. And it's really pushed by uh, a couple of senators, um, uh, Senator Alex Padilla, a uh, Democrat from California, and Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee. So it's this bipartisan thing. And they're saying, look, it's time. It's time for these performers in the U.S. to get paid when their songs are played on the radio because the radio stations are profiting from that. Oh, and you know, what's particularly galling, too, is, you know, over the last 20 years, there's been this consolidation of radio. And, you know, these these are gigantic corporations, and we are not talking about a lot of money. We're talking about pennies per play of a song. Pennies per play, if that. And, you know, for them to push back on that, you know, it's it's just... It's yeah. just the hubris. It's galling, you know. It's like, come yeah. on, people. It's, it's again, and it's like, you know, we, we've we've talked a lot about sort of the some of the galling things about, you know, songwriters and, getting paid. Yes, yeah. and it's just like, oh my gosh, come on, come yeah. on. But, but at but least push, we're making progress on yes. both on both fronts. You know, we talked last week um, about Glenn's article about how uh, the increases are going to be rolled out for songwriters. Well, now, if this happens, you know, this is going to be a big change in, a, in an industry that has notoriously not changed since, you know, piano rolls 100 years ago. That's so, right. Unlike satellite and online radio, right, and streaming services, put those aside. Satellite, online radio, streaming services, that's, that's different. But AM, FM stations... They pay only songwriter royalties when you know for the music that they broadcast. So this this new legis- legislation—that's easy for you to say—would mm-hmm. establish a fair market value for radio performance royalties in the same way it has been on those other platforms. So it's it's not like they're trying to put anybody out of business. They're looking for a fair alternative, but one where these artists are paid. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like it's asking too much. And again, we really are talking about pennies per play, and um, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't stop. In this case, uh, the NAB president and CEO Curtis Legite uh, said that the imposition of a performance royalty would greatly damage the decades-long relationship between recording artists and broadcasters. Opponents so of paying these... them money is going to damage the That's relationship. Right. Okay, I just want to make sure just we clarify. we're on the same page. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so you know, it's it's just it's, it's. I hope that they can get this through because we are we are so behind the rest of the world on this, and it's really 
uh, as as in, well, in, it, it says here in a statement on the Senate bill, this same chap, NAB President Curtis Legite, said the NAB remains steadfastly opposed to the AMFA, which disregards hmm. the value of radio and would undermine our critical public service to line the pockets of multinational billion-dollar record labels. NAB thanks the 250 bipartisan members of Congress, including 28 senators and a majority of the House, who instead support the local Radio Freedom Act, which recognizes Mm. the unique benefits that radio provides to communities across the country and opposes inflicting a new performance fee on local broadcast radio stations. Okay. All right. Let's let's as we end this thing, let's let's take the other side of that for, and let's mm-hmm. let uh, Mitch Glazer, you know, who's the uh, chairman and CEO of the uh, Recording Industry Association of America, RIAA, who we yep. just talked about. His point was this American Music Fairness Act takes a smart, calibrated approach towards solving a decades-old problem in the radio industry. It will finally ensure that recording artists and copyright owners are paid fairly for their work, regardless of the technology used to broadcast it, while carefully protecting small and non-commercial stations to preserve truly local radio our communities depend on. So there, we've been fair and balanced on yes, both sides. We, we, absolutely. We pointed out each side, and you know, um, I'm just thrilled that a lot of these issues that we've talked about are now being debated and they're being talked about and that's that's a healthy thing for our industry whether it's you know paying the songwriters what they should be whether it's you know paying for radio airplay all of these things uh, i think are really healthy conversations to have yeah absolutely you know what i would like to see actually is is a breakdown of truly uh you know i mean a typical radio station how many songs do you think they play an hour you know Maybe twelve. I don't know. It depends, I guess, on the length of the song or the format. But I, you know, I'd love to see kind of a breakdown of really, truly how much it would cost a given station based on X number of plays per hour of songs. What would that cost in a month, in a year? Um, and I bet it would be a shockingly no, low number. That's just my guess. You know, I mean, I've always heard that it's about a nickel a play for the to, for them to pay the publishing, give or take. Um, and so if, if this is another nickel, so a dime a play totally, and if they do 10 hours or 10, 10, 10 songs an hour, are we talking about a dollar increase? I, I, I don't know. I don't really know the real numbers, but I'd yeah. love to know the real numbers. Well, let's do that. You know, that's a good follow-up. I'll ask our friends, you know, whether, whether it's over at Billboard or maybe, you know, Chris Castle knows. You know, we know people that are much smarter than yes. we are. Um, <laughs> not as handsome, but definitely smarter. Yeah. And, uh you know, we can ask them. I think that's a good follow-up to find out, like, is this going to bankrupt stations or is sure. this kind of a, a small thing? Because if you play music in your restaurant or in your bar, you have to pay, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you're making money on the backs of music, I mean, the digital service providers, they pay for that music, right? If you want music in a in a TV show or a film, you, you pay for that. So... Again, I'm just a big advocate for getting artists paid fairly. I don't want to put anybody out of business, but I know that there are some companies that are having record profits. Yeah. And I think that we need to take a look at how that revenue is flowing and make sure that we reevaluate it because uh, it ain't working. Nope. Absolutely. And on that note, though, 
Jane are going to wrap up this episode. So we do want to thank the wonderful sponsors we have. Banzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town for helping us put the show on every week. We want to thank our listeners for listening in and subscribing to Jay's fabulous newsletter because we certainly appreciate it. And uh, I always say that uh, Jay is the guy that I wanted to sit next to in class in high school because he Aww, always had all the answers and was well-read and knowledgeable. And that... Uh, his newsletter is just a, such a wonderful recap of all the yeah. important stories, and it's a Thank great you, resource. Absolutely. So on behalf of Jay and myself, thanks for listening in this week. Needless to say, we'll be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.